Hello and welcome to Pop Culture on Deprogrammed. Uh, did you guys see us at the beginning? I think we messed up and you could see us for a second. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> oh no. It's all behind what's behind the curtain. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm Carrie Smith. This is my co-host, Mystery Chris. Who's Howdy. Howdy. He's hidden behind an avatar and for an uh, undisclosed amount of time. Is that right? <laughs> Maybe indefinitely. Till I can get out of the country, yes. Uh, I see. Um, if it's your first time watching, this is a brand new channel that I'm on. It's called Deprogram with Carrie Smith. You can hit subscribe. We also now, finally, we have set up a Patreon and a subscribe star. If you like a show and want to contribute financially, or if you like it, you can just share the links. That would help us out a lot. Um, we also have a Locals which I don't understand entirely yet. I'm figuring it out, but there are posts there. So if you're on locals, you can find us there. Are you on locals? No, no, but I, 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 I have Twitter. I just haven't put anything on it. What is your handle on Twitter? Uh, it is MC mystery, Chris. Okay. So like MC hammer, but just MC mystery, Chris. MC mystery, Chris. That's a bit redundant. Cause it's also your initials. I know MC MC. <laughs> It's uh, like ACDC, but no. I like that we're pulling you out of the, you've kind of been, not a Luddite, but you're not really all over social media and we're sort of forcing you into it. Yes, yes. It's very weird. I'm, I'm, I'm like a caveman and you're introducing like computers to me. Like, what? <laughs> what is this? Um, well, I'm happy that you're here with me tonight. I hope you're doing well. You pick the topic tonight. I'm just going to tell everyone. <laughs> yes if you hate it blame me <laughs> if you hate it if you hate it go to twitter backslash mystery chris <laughs> and let him know <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about fresh prince of bel-air uh which actually really i did love who didn't love the original right and then we're going to be talking about the new reboot which is just called bel-air but first of all i want to tell you i want to hear what you're watching that you enjoy and I'll tell you a little bit about what I'm watching. Uh, so one of the things I'm watching right now is um, Raised by Wolves on HBO, HBO Max, actually, science fiction uh, show. And it's the backdrop is that there is a war in the future between a new religion and atheists. And uh, one of the atheists sends a ship full of embryos and uh, two androids to another planet to uh, raise these kids on and raise them as atheists. Uh, but the religious people also send the people out in space. And so um, as things progress, things start getting weirder and stranger and just all sorts of interesting things. And so, you know, initially when I, I heard about the show, I was like, oh, is this going to be a show or is this like kind of bashing on all religious people? It's like, oh, the, the religious people in here are kind of terrible, but so are the atheists. So it's like, Everyone's kind of equally terrible. Equally <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're, it, I think it just kind of highlights the kind of tribal nature of humanity and how people are constantly using things to rationalize their behaviors after the fact. So I haven't uh, even heard of this show. Yeah. It, wow. It's pretty good, especially when you compare it to Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard. But I guess that's not saying much. Me? Because I don't know anything about it. Yeah, yeah, you don't need to uh, watch Star Trek okay. stuff. Oh. Um, 
I just want to say hi because some people in the chat are saying hello, hello. We don't have, just a reminder, we don't have super chats yet. We have to reach 4,000 watched hours on the channel before they let us monetize and then we'll probably be demonetized. Um, but so we don't have that yet, but we'll try and read some chats if, if there's anything you have to say later. Um, I'm watching, well, one thing I just rewatched, did you know that they're filming a movie here? Uh, no, what movie? Well, they're always filming some movie, but what movie? You haven't been up to visit me in a couple of weeks. They took over the whole town square. They're filming an eight. I think it's HBO. It's David Kelly. They're doing a series, one of these limited series things. And it's, um, it's about the uh, 1980 ax murder that happened oh. in, in Wiley, Texas. This, this woman, uh, Betty Gore, she was murdered by her friend, Candy Montgomery who was having an affair with her husband. And it was this wow. really small town. I think it's a much bigger town now. Like a lot of these small towns in Texas are much larger now, but back then it was extremely small. I think they only had like four or five police officers in the whole town. It was just a really tight knit community. They went to church together and she brutally murdered her. And then she pled self-defense and I'm not going to tell you what happened because you might want to, there's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a movie starring. It was a, it was a, there was a book that I haven't read that was, that was done about the case. And then there's a TV movie that you can find free on YouTube. It's called a killing in a small town and it's Barbara Hershey. I think it was made in the early nineties. And so if you want to go see something awful, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's good. Something awful that happened right? and I'm not going to ruin the ending for you. But they're making this this uh, movie here right now, and I'm so, you know, I lived in Los Angeles for a long time. I, I do have some fond memories of Los Angeles, but I really don't have a lot of, I worked in the entertainment industry. I just don't have a lot of, uh, there's none of that kind of, oh, movie, there's none of that kind of starstruck excitement that occurs when I see something like that. I'm really just like, I'm trying to get to my coffee shop <laughs> and you guys have blocked off the whole square. <laughs> and then I, I found parking like three blocks away and walked all the way there and the coffee shop was closed, obviously, because nobody's coming there yeah. coffee while they're doing this. And, and outside the courthouse where they're filming, there's a crowd of people with signs all chanting you know, murderer. And it's like, I just <laughs> <laughs> couldn't even tell they were filming a movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, actually, I don't know if I told you this in a previous episode, uh, but the first time I stumbled upon them, I didn't even know this was happening. I was early in the morning. I was going to Dallas. I stopped to try and get coffee and I parked right on this. And I, my brain was like, I noticed these old timey cars, but we also have once a month here, we have the old timey car thing. Uh, jeans in chat. She knows what it's called. I forget, but oh. we have the old timey car thing. One yeah, time. that's cool. And so I didn't connect that there was something strange going on, even though there were also old timey police cars <laughs> and television vans, but I, I was still waking up. And so I parked and I got out of my truck because I saw this crowd of people in front of the courthouse. And I'm like, oh, these freaking BLM people again. And I started like, <laughs> <laughs> and so I start walking over to them because I usually have words with them. And I would start walking over and I got halfway there and I realized they're all dressed like pretty cool, like like 1979, 1980 outfits. <laughs> Everything just clicked and I'm like, oh, this is a movie. And this guy starts coming like, ma'am, you can't park there, you know. 
So that was my first just even realization that this was happening. <laughs> Be cool if they made a movie, uh, uh, a fictional movie based on your life where you just travel through time and like talk to activists and like various, you know, places <laughs> on earth and various times and just try to convince them to give up their crazy beliefs. Yeah. Be, that'd be fun. Well, you know, there's that that thing I want to do with you, which is to go to a protest in Austin with a sign that just says some something, some kind, some bit of advice from Jordan Peterson. Like, if you just had, if you went to a protest and you had a sign that's just like, "Go home and clean your room," <laughs> I think that would it be effective? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> well, I, I told you my idea where I wanted to go to Austin and I wanted to wear a MAGA hat and a daishiki and just like go down the street waving at people. Like they would want to say like, you're a racist, but then they'd be like, no, but he's African. I, I, I'm a racist. And then they, they wouldn't, their heads would explode. It'd be glorious. We're still going to do that. <laughs> I, I mean, I want to do that because we want to do comedy on this new channel. So I feel like we could take the whole, do you remember the Staying Alive music video where they're just uh, walking through this yeah, down yeah, the road beat, and then there's yeah. like a, the beat, yeah, and there's this abandoned building and we could do, we could do a parody of Staying Alive and it's just you staying alive, staying alive, <laughs> walking through the streets, the woke streets of Austin and you're just. <laughs> I, I want uh, Michael Jackson's uh, music, Mama Say, Mama Saka, Mama Gusa. I want that playing like, the whole time. <laughs> We can fight over which song. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I watched was the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've heard mixed things about her, though. I It was good. I, I didn't hear until afterwards that people are saying it's not good. I, I enjoyed it. I didn't, I didn't expect to enjoy it. I, a lot of times sequels are pretty bad and so when you say enjoy it like do you like generally enjoy it or do you enjoy it because there's you know from what you've told me there's no quote-unquote woke stuff in it because a lot of people these days will like give a pass to a lot of movies that don't have woke stuff and it, even though they may not be very good or great simply just not having that is refreshing for a lot of people and so they tend to rate it higher than they ordinarily would well they had woke stuff but well, first of all, let me answer your question. No, that's not the reason I liked it. I liked it because it was genuinely scary. I thought it was really well done. The director, some guy I hadn't heard of, David Blue Garcia. So one of my Olympics, <laughs> Kenman. Um, but I liked it because it was genuinely scary. It was well done. But also, it's like these Austin woke hipsters moving to this small town, much like Wiley, Texas, or something. They're moving to this small town, or it's actually kind of an abandoned small town and they're coming in with their hipster Austin wokeness. And they're like, we're going to open a coffee shop and they have an art store and they, and they see a Confederate flag and they're like, ah, oh, this is awful. This town. And you know, they insist on the Confederate flag being taken down from this building. I mean, they make a big deal of it in the plot. Right. And they turn their nose up at one of the locals. Cause he has a gun and they're just rude and arrogant city folk. And, then they get like brutally slaughtered. <laughs> <laughs> it is a horror movie. <laughs> I, I'm, 
So is this movie, do you know if it's just produced by one of the larger movie studios or not? Because it seems like it's reflective of the culture and kind of making fun of, you know, social justice types, which I haven't seen very many big movies that have, you know, really gone in hard making fun of, of that ideology. I'm not sure. Maybe someone can look it up and tell us in chat. I know that the rights to, I read somewhere the rights had fallen out. I think it was maybe with Lionsgate. Correct mm. me if I'm wrong. Um, they had a different director at the beginning and then they ended up getting this guy, uh, David Blue Garcia. But uh, yeah, you're right. It, honestly, I wasn't thinking too much about wokeness while watching it, which was a blessed you know, minute of reprieve was a reprieve of like thinking about all that stuff. Other than these characters were a little woke and then all the, all the horror movie stuff happens. But mm. anyway, if you like horror and I know it's not everyone does, but I liked it. Well, I have to watch it. Um, okay. Let's go back to 1990. Yeah. <laughs> Fresh <laughs> Prince of Bel-Air. Um, you sent me an article that I read through and I'm actually don't know what your opinions are going to be about it. I'm very interested to hear what you have to say. Cause sometimes I can guess we're going to think about something, mm -hmm. but I had mixed opinions about this piece. And so maybe you do too. Uh, Cole, can you pull that article up? How would you characterize it while he's pulling it up? Like, I, I, I agree with you in terms of having mixed feelings on it. The, the overall thesis, I was still, unsure about exactly what she meant when she was arguing for there were certain points she brought up in the article that i agreed with but a lot of those points didn't they weren't they didn't really pertain to her main thesis that she was arguing you know for and so i, I it, it's well let's just get into the article a little bit because you know I'll, I'll make some comments as we read through it so this is for anyone who's just listening and not watching. This is in Vulture. And the headline is, Bel Air is a frustrating reminder that representation isn't enough. It's never enough. <laughs> it's, it's never enough. They're not black enough. They have right. to be blacker, care. The title alone made me think I was going to hate this, but mm -hmm. I didn't. Not entirely. Okay. So do you want to start reading through it? Okay, uh, let's see. We're going to see if I can make this larger. There we go. All right, so uh, revisit. Oh, sorry, Colkins. There, thank you. Uh, revisiting a Sundance panel with black filmmakers whose work appeared in the festival uh, at the festival on January 1st, uh, or January, I was struck by what Aftershock filmmaker Tanya Lewis Lee had to say about the state of Hollywood and its fixation on gangsters and struggle. Which, first of all, I, I kind of agree, but I would say Hollywood's obsessed with movies where blacks are the victims of racism, particularly in the context of civil rights and slavery. I'd say they're fixated on biopics, like with athletes and entertain, entertainers. Uh, like, um, uh, I know uh, Chadwick Boseman actually did two of them. He played Jackie Robinson and uh, James Brown, two biopics, separate movies. Uh, and they're also obsessed with Tyler Perry type movies. <laughs> not not just the Medea movies, but even like the romantic dramas, you know, like Why Did I Get Married 
type movies. So I, I kind of say those three, and yeah, there are some gangster stuff, but I, I tend to think the gangster stuff is more uh, exclusive to music and and videos and more that aspect of, of the hip hop. Yeah, culture. I would say if you if we were talking about the 90s, yes, I think that they depicted a lot of black gangster stuff, but now it's what you're saying. It's a lot of black people overcoming racism, slavery, picks and then are they still doing the tyler perry stuff i don't know if they're doing any new medea movies i know tyler perry has his own studio and he's produced some of those shows that have been on i think tbs and stuff but and i know i don't know when the last medea movie is i should call my mom she knows <laughs> okay. she, she burst in my room once it was like hey do you want to watch some medea movies i'm like no no thank you mom i love you but anyway, so uh, so where's the story about the tech bro who's doing something? Lewis Lee asked. Where's the story about the black guy who's MacGyver? Where's our black Indiana Jones? Oh, that's coming. Uh, Lewis Lee thinks that these projects are on the horizon, that the industry is waking up and realizing what we really have to offer. But I doubt such reform is possible. Is the industry waking up or is it realizing it can strip mine black aesthetics language styles swagger using black artists in front of and behind the camera to hide the fact that these works are just uninspiring as what's come before and i i can see there are certain things i can agree with that to a degree but i think a lot of the aesthetics are things that blacks have pushed out and adopted themselves like again the whole kind of hip-hop culture and the influence that the music uh, industry has had in the movie industry, but more so music industry. I think promoting that certain lifestyle and a certain uh, form of hip hop that kind of glamorized um, being more thuggish, uh, I think is something that uh, has really pushed these aesthetics that she's talking about. And yeah, you say, yeah, some of these people at the top, you know, you know, white people are pushing this stuff, but a lot of blacks are also pushing this out and so i wouldn't say it's just you know a hollywood thing because a, a lot of blacks do um put a great deal of value into this to the to living that kind of lifestyle even though it's fake because back in the day there used to be a, a little bit more of a concern about rappers and uh kind of people in that hip-hop culture that were not authentic that you know didn't actually grow up in inner cities and didn't live the lifestyles that they were rapping about but now it's kind of gone people don't really care <laughs> so it, it's it, i kind of get a little bit of what she's saying but not entirely so what, what did you well think? i think that i think what we're seeing is someone who's upset with the products of their own belief system hmm. because she's sort of saying like why don't we see, she's quoting this guy who's like, where's the story about the black guy who's MacGyver? Where's our black Indiana Jones? What about the black tech bro, a movie about that? You're, she's saying, I, I, essentially it sounds to me like she's saying, I wanna see a movie where being black is incidental, but you're in a belief system and, and Hollywood is currently captured by a belief system that says being black is integral it's not incidental it's yeah it's got to be black black first it's got to be about black experience and black, black and you're not going to see a movie where being black is incidental if you're pushing an ideology that says it's not you know if right. you're making race the primary thing then it's going to be the primary thing right yeah i 
I, I don't know if she's saying, I mean, let, let's read on because I, I didn't quite get that sense. But, you know, maybe if as we're reading, maybe I'll start to see that a little bit more. But well, I think she contradicts herself later. But that's what I, I got. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. yeah, it seemed like she she was going very kind of pro-black. Yeah. Um, but like right here, she just wants to see. What about a guy who happens to be with Sandy and Jones happens to be black? Yeah, well, that's not going to happen when it's like black is the number one priority or mm -hmm. diversity on screen is the number one priority. It's, it's sort of saying, she's saying, it's, it's, are they just are they just putting black people on camera and behind the camera to satisfy our demand? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> they are, because you've made that important. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, can we scroll down a little bit, please? Don't look at that ad, whatever it is. <laughs> oh goodness oh that's also on the same uh, streaming service as bel air uh bel air peacock's dramatic revamp of beloved 1990 sitcom the fresh prince of bel air may not kill the dream entirely but it effectively demonstrates how hollow misguided a dream it is is the reboot conceived by executive producer showrunner morgan cooper and former star will smith was born with smith saw cooper's short remaking fresh prince with uh arcly gritty overtones the pilot keeps the bare bones of the sitcom will smith chakari breaks is a rising high school basketball player in philly he gets good grades he loves his mom april parker jones he cares deeply for his city and his friends like trey uh Devontine, how do you even say that name? It doesn't matter. But when a pickup game turns ugly, Will pulls Trey's gun on the local low-level gangster to save his friend from brutal beatdown. Will's mother, rightfully worried about his arrest, sends him to Los Angeles to stay with family, including Uncle Phil, and who uses his political influence to pull some strings. So for anybody who hasn't seen it, I'm going to cut in here and just tell you, um, cause she's about to talk about this a little bit. They basically took the fun sitcom Fresh Prince that we all enjoyed from the nineties and they reimagined it as this gritty drama. And so it, so they're not trying to be a sitcom. They are trying to be a gritty drama. Right. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, they, they took a lot of themes you know, because I, I think it's easy to kind of forget that there were a lot of themes ar around race and, and things in the original series. And so they kind of borrowed some of those, but um, exaggerated them uh, and took out the fun parts, as you say. <laughs> and so uh, I mean, we can get a little bit into that later, but uh, we'll continue on. Uh, can you scroll down a little bit more, Cole, please? He might not be able to. I can read the next uh, part. I've got it pulled okay. up. Oh, well, there it goes. Down. Okay. But you want to keep reading, Kim? Yeah, I'll read. Cooper's decision to dramatize the sitcom could have effervesced into a genuinely moving story, teasing out dynamics of class, power, and coming of age in a society that's never had the racial reckoning it believes it did. But we live in an exceedingly dark timeline where Bel Air is a byproduct of an industry unwilling to give these stories the radical political and social context they deserve. The show attempts to bottle swagger, taking the imaginary and argo of black neighborhoods to communicate a confused message that black excellence is equated with wealth. 
When it seeks to tease out the tensions between Will and his family's class perspective on life, the drama unravels, its failures made all the more apparent by starkly ugly cinematography. To entangle the issues inherent in Bel Air is to take a tour through the pitfalls of Hollywood itself when it comes to black visual representation. Um, <clears throat> do you want me to continue? Do you have something to say about that? Because I, this is where she started to lose me because I thought... <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what is it? It's not enough of what for you? And I didn't really get her point until the end. Yeah. Um, well, she, she, sorry. Well, she, she talks about how the industry is unwilling to give the stories the radical political and social context they deserve. What does she mean by, I, I have a guess what that context is, <laughs> but she doesn't do a great job defining it, in my opinion, throughout the arg article. But I, you can get, you can pick up all the clues and guess what part of the ideological aisle she's oh, in. Oh yeah, here's where she comes. By the way, somebody in chat says Argot. Yeah, I don't know if I said that word right. I've never heard that word before. Apologies. Um, one of the show's earliest tells comes to bear through the relationship between Will and Carlton, dramatically grading Ollie Charlton. By the way, that's one of the biggest disappointments for me as well. I share this with her. I love the original Carlton. He's so Yeah, quirky. who doesn't? Yeah. He's so fun and quirky and silly. And this Carlton is just a douche canoe. Yeah. Th then this one, <laughs> they they made Carlton, I wouldn't quite say he hates Will, but he does kind of look down on him and have a disdain for him. And that wasn't really present in the original series. And that's, you know, one of the things you saw how, each one of them, both Will and Carlton at times, stuck up for one another, even though Will kind of made fun of Carlton. Sometimes he make fun of him back, but it never got, you know, really nasty like this particular relationship in the new show did. Mm -hmm. Well, this scene that she's about to describe, if you haven't seen the pilot, which by the way, Mystery Chris, clue me in on, you can watch the pilot, only the first episode for free, if you want to go see it and see if uh, what you think about it. So that's the only one I watched, but um, this was, I would say, the pivotal scene in that in that episode. Um, she says, in a sequence late in the premiere episode, Will is trying and failing to settle into his new life. He's exploring the grounds of the prep school he'll soon be attending and where Carlton may be one of the few black students, but is achingly admired. Striding into the locker room, Will finds a gaggle of white students with Carlton in the center singing along to a rap song and spouting the N-word with abandon. When Will tries to object to their use of the word, the loudest, Connor, gets in his face with all of the bravado of the blonde, rich, deeply forgettable white man he is. <laughs> I, was, I was shocked and not shocked when I read that part. I was like, oh, of course. Just a little, mm -hmm. little casual racism. That's cool. Just a little casual racism thrown in, that's all. <laughs> deeply forgettable white man he is. What's crucial here is that Carlton stops Will and goes so far as to side with Connor. The locker room gives way to the chintzy interior of the bank's mansion. Quote, day one at Bel Air Academy and you're already playing the race card. Carlton lobs at Will with addiction nearing white mutability. With addiction nearing white mutability? What is she saying? He talks like a white guy? <laughs> He's too white. Yeah. It's just a word, Carlton says. He ain't with the culture, and clearly you ain't either, Will counters, as the two cousins stand vis-a-vis. -vis. 
you're really flipping out on a word that black rappers sell to millions of white people like Connor every day, and you expect them to not use the words they're listening to, Carlton contends. The way the actor says the word black is so hard-edged, it dips into parody before going full throttle with the line, kiss my rich black ass. Okay, let's <laughs> talk about this. Let's talk about this. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that scene, I was surprised. I was surprised that they put that scene in there because I think I was more surprised that I agreed with Carlton because they were going to try to make him the 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 kind of uh, foil, the bad guy in in that particular scene. But the commentary on the usage of that word is pretty much non-existent, really for the rest of the episode, because both of him uh, will get into that spat about it. But uh, beyond that, there's no commentary on the context of saying that word, because, you know, essentially Will's position is that, and this is the same people who go after Joe Rogan, but his position is that regardless of the context of saying that word, it's dependent on who's saying that. So right. the, race the race of the person is, providing the meaning for that word, not the context that the person right. was just completely racist and a horrible thing. It's something I would think that the show would want to concentrate on. But in this episode and all the episodes that I've seen thus far, they're on episode five right now. There's no comment. There, there's no commentary on that. And if this was done in the original series, there would be commentary because each episode gets tied up. Like whatever conflict they're having gets tied up at the end of the episode. And this show, I understand they're going for a more kind of realistic one. In real life, the conflict probably wouldn't be uh, tied up. But it is a show that is trying to incorporate social commentaries of sort. And for this one, they don't seem to have much to say on they it. They don't. And the original ones, they always had sort of that after-school special kind of vibe where there's a, <laughs> a moral lesson and, and, and pretty good moral lessons imparted throughout the show. Um, and they would have wrapped it up, but you're right. That's more of a sitcom format. However, in this scene, I, even though, like I said, the, the new re the new reimagined Carlton's kind mm -hmm. of douche, but I think he was right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and you're supposed to empathize with Will and think yes, he's right. Exactly. And it's like, no, it, <laughs> it, in fact, in that scene, so they're in a locker room and it's a bunch of white guys and Carlton and all the white guys and Carlton are dancing and singing along to this song. And they're saying the N word because the, the N word is in the song like a hundred times. And Will gets upset because it's white people saying it. And Carlton rightly points out, you know, how are you going to get mad about them singing the words in a song that they like, a song that's sold to them that black rappers are singing. It's like, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's just a word. And What's really funny is right after that scene, well, right when they leave the locker room, the music changes. You know, there's a, a scene change and a music change. And the next song they put on also has the N-word all the way through it. <laughs> Did you notice that? I didn't I notice like, that part. Yeah, I was like, okay, you're just going to keep playing this song. But don't you guys say it. But we're going to make listen to it if you want to watch this show. But don't you. Um, it's just sort of a. That's one of those things that I think sets kids up to be. Uh, you're actually making this word, you're imbuing it with all of this historical racism and 
pain and you're making it taboo. And so of course, kids who want to rebel mm -hmm. are going to use that word. And I'm, I, I don't know about you, but I've started to hear about even in California, Gen Z, like these young teenagers, high schoolers in California, this friend was talking about kids there who are, who are saying things now kind of mocking social justice and saying words that we never said in the nineties <laughs> and saying that because they, they don't have any respect for it anymore because they're yeah. being preached to all the time about these are the off limit words. It's, it's just sort of, I feel like they pushed it to such a degree now where um, people, people see it as a obvious hypocrisy. And so the kind of person that wants to behave as a joker or a jester or a troll in society, of course, is going to say things like that. Right, right. Yeah. As people pointed out, it does form a kind of a almost counterculture if you're constantly telling people, just like we're talking about in the first episode of Pop Culture, when people were telling, you know, uh, young kids not to watch certain shows, not to listen to certain types of music, it just made it cooler. And so when you're telling people not to say this, you're going to get a pushback because that's just inherent with modern day use. You know, just to constantly yeah. go against what's the biggest, uh, most powerful authority. So. Right. Well, that was the most interesting scene to me. So, but let's, we can continue with this, <laughs> this article. Okay. So don't worry. There's not much left guys, but um, she says the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air ran from 1990 to 1996, a golden age for black representation with sitcoms like Living Single, culturally specific kid shows like Gullah Gullah Island and the works of independent cinematic titans like Julie Dash and Charles Burnett and launched Will Smith into a cherished pantheon of stars. The series was warm, inviting, and full of physical comedy and loving friction between its various modes of blackness. Okay, I'm, I'm on board with all of that. Except yes, I agree. Except, I mean, I guess various modes of blackness. Okay, but you could have just said it was warm and inviting and full of physical comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, James Avery's Uncle Phil especially remains a cherished example of a doting, active Black father, albeit a conservative one. Like most of the Black fathers of that televisual era with Captain Benjamin Sisko of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, a notable exception. I, and, you know, I'm a huge Star Trek fan and I love Deep Space Nine. And I'm not sure exactly what she means. I mean, because there's no politics in, in terms of political parties obviously in star trek so i don't know if she's just talking about how a lot of the fathers i don't think a lot of the fathers and black fathers in 90s television stated that they were you know conservative or a republican whatever you know uncle phil did because they were republicans in the original uh show but a, a lot of the uh I'm going with yeah it, it, so captain cisco uh, there's, he's a father who's taking care of his son. I mean, do they mean conservative in, in that regard? Because th there's not really a political stance so much as it is just the role he serves. So I'm not sure exactly what what she's talking about in, in you know, saying that he's either not conservative or liberal or whatever. He's just really neither yeah. of us. It. It's just odd that she would even bring him up in this particular conversation or article. Well, the other fathers I can think of from sitcoms at that time, it's like Cosby, was he culturally conservative? Maybe, but I don't remember his politics ever being discussed. Although it's been a long time since I've watched that. Um, there were other ones. I just, I don't remember the other ones like uh, Marisha. I don't remember Marisha. Uh, father was like, or sister, sister. I don't uh, remember what the father's, you know, beliefs were there. I, I, I don't remember them. 
forgettable shows. Oh, Tree Surgeon says, I guess she thinks that they were conservatives because if they weren't, they wouldn't be around. That's a joke. (laughs) 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 I need the drum sound. We could do the drum sound. (laughs) Um, Okay, so continuing on. Fresh Prince was born into a post-Reagan America premiering before the 1991 beating of Rodney King and the 1994 crime bill. Today, Uncle Phil's emphasis on respectability and upstanding behavior hits differently. I hate that phrase, by the way. Everybody hates that. <laughs> yeah. It's like a drug phrase. <laughs> it's, then they use it in all these other ways. It's, it's like when advertisers used to always say they would describe stuff like for marketing guys to do their mm. their marketing material make it sexy it's like that word doesn't what does that mean when it comes to material marketing material anyway um but bel-air fails to sense this shifting ground evolving the banks family from proudly pro-black to an emblem of as new carlton puts it quote pure unadulterated black excellence end quote then she says we can infer they're democrats because they they praise michelle obama blah 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 uh, the combative relationship between Carlton and Will is the most important driving force in Bel Air's first three episodes. Their anger towards what the other represents spills forth from kitchen arguments to fights at school parties, shifting Carlton from a corny but loving kid invested in his blackness to one deeply obsessed with whiteness and acceptance by the elites is a remarkable misreading of the original series. It would be far more potent for the writers to engage with black conservatism without labeling it as a wholly white acceptance, but rather a consequence of navigating oppression in a world that values what the Banks family has and represents. But even the way the characters are constructed feels muddled, especially on Will's end as an emblem of the people and the streets. Again, I don't know what you think about this paragraph, but she's confusing. I think she's internally conflicted here in some ways because she's saying, well, first of all, one of the things she's doing is she's conflating wealth with being white, (laughs) which the social justice people do all the time, which Joe Biden does. What was that quote of his where he was like, Uh, poor uh, kids are just as smart and talented as white kids. Yes. Poor kids are just as smart and talented as white kids. She's doing the same thing. Yeah. She's saying that Carlton is obsessed with whiteness. No, he's not. He's obsessed with money and a, and a <laughs> prestige and elite culture. That's not white. Well, there was a, you know, in the original series, um, and I think you saw a little bit of this, but uh, in the original series, there was an episode where Carlton and Will joined a black fraternity and the black uh, fraternity uh, head of fraternity doesn't accept Carlton because he thinks Carlton's not black enough. And Carlton gives a speech at at the end where he says that, you know, being black isn't what I'm trying to be. It's what I am. And I think the Fresh Prince, the original series did a great job showing that there was a diversity amongst us blacks, that we weren't a monolith. You know, we, there's varying different types of interest in, in music, uh, interest in politics, religion. Uh, there, it, we, there was a lot of variation between us. And I think there were a culture at the time and still aspects of the cultures, you know, particularly driven by media wants to convey this 
idea that we are a monolith that we we think like the borg or something and i think the original series did a great job kind of fleshing that out because yeah it did deal with some uh issues of racism in the uh um you know with whites you know there's episode where a white cop profiles uh carlton and, and will because they're driving a nice car and there's commentary obviously on racial profiling but there's also commentary on black prejudice like i just mentioned uh, there's another episode where one of will's aunts um, brings a white man home that she's going to marry and the family's kind of taken aback and one of the other aunts is um, very much against it and so it dealt with it it showed a kind of a, a like i said a variety amongst us blacks and i i, I think the new show, there's a degree of that in there, but not in the same way as the original show. But I think it's more than what she is is acknowledging. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody in the chat, Scott Miller says the writers of the new show are obsessed with whiteness. Yeah, I think I think they are to a degree, maybe. But she, this the writer of this article is obsessed with what <laughs> she calls whiteness. It's just that what she calls whiteness is not whiteness and, and, what and and that's the thing when i was telling you about the article how she doesn't define a lot of things like define for us readers what is blackness what is black culture define that but i don't think she's going to <laughs> but because i i want her to say that it's you i think her idea is more of identifying with my low you know um lower class individuals in the culture that exists in a lot of inner city you know black areas how that's still considered to be quote unquote black but but what what is that why is that pertain just to a particular race it's not software we're not born with that look at what they the social justice people push out when they talk about whiteness look at all the terms that they push and they try to associate with being white and was it the one of the smithsonian museums that had this whole uh, whiteness and blackness display, and they ended up having to remove it. But when that came out, do you do you remember some of the things on their list? They were defining yes. white whiteness was, uh, you know, nuclear family. Uh, hard arriving work. on time wasn't that one of them? Arriving on time, how how racist is that? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, striving for excellent excellence, individualism, hard work. These were all things they were saying were whiteness. So what does that leave for blackness? Yeah. It's because, it's, you know, the original series and even this this series, I think, does show the effect of fathers in the lives of their children and the stability that that creates for the family. And that's something that Will did not have in a show, either show. And if that was something that the show chose to explore more, I think that would be really good. But I don't think they're going to fully go through, you know, to the degree that, you know, I think they should based on, you know, what we see in current society. I mean, the original show did a little bit. You had that episode where Will's father, you know, who abandoned, uh, abandoned him when he was a child, comes back in his life. And then abandons him again and will you know yes speech to uncle phil about how he's going to be you know uh, a, a good father take care of his kids and you know will ends up breaking down crying at the end wondering why his father doesn't you know want him anymore and that's probably one of will smith's best 
acting, you know, uh, moments, I think, and something that's still touching to a lot of people, including myself, watching that. But again, that's something that really emphasized how important, you know, fathers are for, you know, all families, but particularly for in the Black, you know, community. And I wish the uh, new series would kind of concentrate on that a little bit more at, you know, and this woman obviously doesn't really acknowledge that much. She kind of talks a little bit about Uncle Phil and what makes him great, but she doesn't really get into, you know, the effect of so many children growing up without, you know, uh, a strong uh, father, you know, in the, in their home. Mm -hmm. Well, there are people in the chat who are echoing what you're saying. Uh, Two Sisters in Some Yarn says, my favorite scene was when Will's bio dad showed up and bailed it was so damn raw oh thanks cole he put it up on the screen um and then uh liz liz clothier says carlton and will admired each other in the original show because of their differences yeah they both had an effect on one of there too because they both evolved like mm -hmm. you know the family evolved they became a little less uh, uptight and more loose and, and will became a little bit more um he, he kind of accepted the lifestyle a little bit more, you know, because at first we watched, you know, the first episode recently after not seeing it for years. But, you know, at first he's very standoffish and he was kind of making fun and, and uh, very much against, you know, their lifestyle because he thought uh, it was, you know, not in line with his ideas of what black is and accused Uncle Phil of abandoning uh, his ties to the black community. And, you know, Uncle Phil reminds him that, you know, he grew up in the streets and, you know, he idolized Malcolm X and he heard Malcolm X speaks and he has a great perspective on being black in America. But, you know, he still worked and, you know, turned himself into, you know, a lawyer and eventually a judge and was able to provide for his family and provide, you know, them a very upscale, you know, uh, life. And so I, I think, again, one of the things that the new show is kind of dances around and, and does a little bit, but ultimately hasn't fully em embraced that as much as I think they could. And clearly this woman, again, you know, it's not really acknowledging any of that or much of that in her article. She seems very muddled to me. Like she yes. can't figure out what she wants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, the article is very confusing, but. Yes. Um, <laughs> I was like, is it just me? Am I, am I, am I, am I, I read it like. Two or three times. I'm like, I still don't understand what this woman's <laughs> Right. Um, just a couple more things in the chat. Uh, Tree Surgeon also liked that episode. And he also says it hit hard. They, you're a joker. I can see. I see what you did there. Hit hard. <laughs> and Scott Miller says in the original Fresh Prince, it wasn't a big deal to the audience that they were black. It was a fish out of water story. Mm -hmm. It's a shame how we've regressed. Yeah, yeah. I I would agree. This one, I, well, you've seen more of the episodes than I have, but mm -hmm. watching the watching the first episode, it it's still a fish out of water story, but you can tell that the writers' room is definitely like all the stuff this woman's complaining about. Actually, it is in the front of their minds. They're all like the yeah. black experience, the black story, the representation, like that's what they're, they're writing from there first, instead of writing just from the fish out of water place. Yeah. And I can, uh, uh, I guess once we finish our call, I can tell you where the story has gone. Cause I've watched all the episodes that have been released so far. And, uh, it, it goes to some places that are, uh, kind of predictable in terms of the culture, <laughs> you know, you know, what types of, uh, 
art and uh, television and films are what they're going to say, given that they're being produced in the current climate. So I can fill you in on some of that. Okay. <laughs> um, should we read the end of this? Uh, this let's see. Yeah. At the end, I think she gets back to some more of this white equals rich thing or rich equals white. Um, do you want to read Bel Air strives for, or do you want me to? Uh, why don't you go ahead? Uh, Bel Air strives for authenticity in the most thinly drawn manner possible. Clock how often will mentions cheesesteaks or, or Philly slang, the words tumbling out of his mouth like oversized marbles. When Will tries to escape Bel Air with help from jazz, only to be caught by Uncle Phil and Jeffrey, the show dovetails into one of its many artificial moments, never reaching the emotional depth such an exchange requires. Quote, I can handle mine. I ain't never had no daddy. Well, Christ, I'm just, I'm sorry that just, that stumbled out of my mouth like marbles. It just doesn't, <laughs> I ain't never had no daddy. Well, cries Uncle Phil, I've been my own man. Vulnerability is often chased with posturing sans interrogation. The acting reads as though the performers saw the script once, moments before action was called, and harsh lighting elides, is that elides? I don't know that word. Elides the beauty of black skin tones. But it's more than just the failed efforts to make Will and his Vladkin reflect the specific grooves of blackness in different geographic environs. What? (laughs) 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 I know she doesn't like the lighting. Um, (laughs) She thinks that they're not good actors. Okay. But what does that have to do with your tie? Anyway. In episode two, as Will chokes playing basketball, his mind reeling back to his herring incident with the cops at the start of the series, he has a conversation with Uncle Phil about the system. Uncle Phil believes it can be reformed. Will believes, rightly, that it's working <laughs> exactly as designed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's potentially fertile ground here to push my belief system instead of... I, I still don't get what she's saying. So she disagrees that not every character agrees with her. Only one of the characters agrees with her. How <laughs> dare oh, Phil just agree? She has to see herself in all the characters. All the so narcissistic. Uncle Phil has a different opinion. All the characters have, should have the same opinion. Um, Will believes rightly. Da, da, da. Uh, she says. They may be talking about the for-profit school-to-prison pipeline for Black youth, which Uncle Phil mentions earlier in a campaign speech. The same can be said about Hollywood, an American system as much about propaganda as it is about entertainment. But the writers lack the intellectual heft necessary to properly thread the ideas of class tension and opposing perspectives on American justice within the structure of a Black family. I don't know what that means. It sounds like somebody didn't get the writing job she applied for in <laughs> Probably. Her in the writer's seat. (laughs) (laughs) They need the intellectual heft that she brings. Um, Bel Air refashions its world and characters to speak to the present moment in a number of insufficient ways. Ashley is mostly a chipper non-entity in the three episodes made available to critics. I mean, did you think that she wasn't that different than the original? She, well, it... uh... Should, should I tell you now? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, this is a spoiler to, you know, if anyone's concerned about having things uh, spoiled for them. But uh, in the, I think it's the fifth episode, uh, she comes out to her sister as gay. She's 12 years old and she 
says she's gay, but she only um, does it after talking to one of Hillary's friends. Hillary invites a bunch of social media influencers, and one of them is a non-binary person. And so Ashley asked a non-binary person her views on sexuality and you know sexual identity. And a non-binary person tells her that, you know, some for some people, their sexuality is their identity. For others, it's not so much. But both people are right. And then Ashley gets the courage to tell her sister. Oh. Her sister's like, that's okay, you know, you're at that age. Oh, come on. You know, you just... It was going to happen. You knew it was, it, you knew it was a matter of time. You, actually, I didn't know it was going to happen. And I, <laughs> I, I ended the first episode thinking... Even with its issues, it wasn't that bad. I would I would watch the next one. Mm -hmm. But now, knowing that, it's like, oh, come on. Why do you got to inject it with all that? Mm -hmm. <sighs> okay. Well, thanks for saving me the time. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, this next part, this part, I'd completely disagree. Because, okay, th listen to this complaint. Hillary is an Instagram baddie branding herself as a culinary influencer, wearing improbable outfits while cooking and talking back to her mother with such disregard it undercuts the show's black mom jokes. Hillary in the original series, this is exactly who she would be. Remember she was, do you remember that in the first series, that episode where she's, um, they're having a party and, this this old white woman is talking to her. It's like a fancy Republican party or something at their house. And she's talking about the ozone layer and how passionate she is about it and everything. Mm -hmm. And she, that's my passion. And then the, the old lady's like, oh, well, how can I donate money? She's like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very honest. You know, a lot of the environmentalists don't yeah. actually care about the issues that they claim to. Yeah, she's just a flighty. Of course, she would be an Instagram influencer mm -hmm. and all obsessed with appearances. And and it, as far as her improbable outfits, Cole, can you put one of those pictures on the screen? Um, or you could put both, put one and then the other. Hillary always had improbable outfits. Does, does <laughs> nobody remember what she was wearing in the 90s? Like her, she And she always had a cool hat and just looked you know, totally different than what we we're used to seeing on, on television. I think it was like it, to say that, to criticize her for that. I just thought that was so weird. I'm like, I thought they did a good job. Yeah. That was a odd criticism. Uh, and, and one of the, I think of second or third episode, she applies or she has a job interview with some company for her, her uh, services to endorse whatever, be an influence for whatever. And she's trying to sell them on a particular type of dish she makes. And it's two white people. And they basically say that, you know, her dish, you know, won't appeal to, you know, their, the crowd that they're looking to market towards. And so she ends up going on social media, calling them racist. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and this pisses off her mom's friend who, who helped her get the interview. Why wouldn't her dish appeal? Because they said it, it wouldn't appeal to, I guess, they are implying that their audience is white, and so that this dish was too ethnic. And what? so, Do you it, know of any, answer me this, do you know of any ethnic black food that white people don't like? Hmm. I, I don't know about, you know, I, I know maybe they don't eat a lot of collard greens. I don't know, maybe white people can well, tell me about but South <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a southern thing. They, I I just find that such that's such an unbelievable plot line for this for this year. It's just so <laughs> ridiculous. I don't, what is there? It's not like, um, 
she's making Filipino food or something mm-hmm. that people have in their everyday diet. It's so, oh, white people don't, they're not going to like your dishes. Why? Because it's collard greens and there's cornbread. By the way, she would not be the type to cook that anyway. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. And the thing is, also, this version of Hillary isn't like ditzy. Like, the original Hillary show was ditzy, which I liked, but maybe they thought that would be too offensive to portray a female character as being kind of a little dumb. So, it, it, I don't like yeah. it. Yeah. Somebody, socially awkward human, says they only know the bougie white folks. Yeah. I guess so. <laughs> Sweet. Um, okay, so that part about Hillary, but then we'll we'll finish it. We'll finish this up, guys. There's not much more. Okay, Aunt Viv. Now we're on to Aunt Viv. Is a former artist forced to become an art history professor after marriage and children shift her course. These visual narrative and character changes render Bel Air's depiction of black trauma, luxury, and family as one in which the black part of the equation is at best a poor aesthetic posturing rather than a way of being can you decipher that <laughs> no <laughs> i think she went to the same school that michael eric dyson went to it's just, let's take random words and tie them together in a sentence it's an aesthetic rather than a way of being what's the difference between a black aesthetic and a black way of being i have no idea <laughs> okay um what capitulated the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air into a beloved continuum of black sitcoms wasn't just how well it slotted class friction into its storylines or the way it mimics the comfort of slipping into a warm robe with a cup of cocoa on a bitter winter night. Well, she loved the original series. <laughs> it's the exuberant chemistry of a cast that felt like a living, breathing black American family. Bel-Air lacks such chemistry, curdling the dynamics meant to enliven the series. Uncle Phil feel, feels like a particular failure with the warmth and care that previously defined the character lacking on the page and in the performance. This Uncle Phil is focused on his political ambitions to the detriment of his family, doubling down on respectability politics and the belief that Black luxury is radical because Black folks are involved. Spoiler alert, it isn't, she says. And while Banks' incarnation of Will strives to echo the mannerisms, vocal stylings, and silliness of the sitcom's Will, this Carlton is acutely reimagined in ways that belie a stunning misunderstanding of the previous sitcom incarnation and the multivalent dynamics of blackness since it aired. Last paragraph. Bel Air, within its marketing and the visual landscape of the show itself, is obsessed with royalty. Time and again, Will is shown in daydreams wearing a golden crown atop a throne. At one point, his mother says, your crown is still waiting, son. Get ready to wear it. Bel Air may glance at watered-down ideas that appear to speak with care toward the tangled dynamics within the Black community, but the royalty imagery is a tell, indicating where the politics and interests of the show truly lie, not with breaking the systems, but by becoming their masters. It's a reminder that when racial progress is measured by black people gaining entry into white spaces, whether Hollywood or the moneyed streets of Bel Air, it perpetuates the very ideas of whiteness and power that created those systems in the first place. Okay. Isn't that what? No, you go ahead. I say, isn't that what she and other people who share her ideology are believe? Like, don't they believe that that's what progress is? Of finding these spaces that or white, quote unquote, white spaces 
with these and using equity programs and affirmative action programs to put more black people of color, more marginalized people in these spaces to de-whitify them. That's why her essay is so tangled to use one of her words. That's why it's so muddled because she doesn't really, she's contradicting herself constantly. It's sort of like, mm -hmm. We left out a whole paragraph at the beginning where she's talking about the history of black people in cinema and how every generation thinks that we're going to get it right now, but we never do because Hollywood sucks and it's a white space. Okay, so what's the alternative? Don't go into what you're calling a white space, even though it's not a white space. It's just a space. <laughs> so would you rather that there not be any black people in Hollywood represented at all? I mean, what is your... What am I supposed to take from a piece like this? Because at the end, she's basically, she's pushing this old uh, um, Audre Lorde idea, which is you can't, uh, was it Audre Lorde or Adrian Rich? One of them was talking about how you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools, right? And that's this idea, this, this, this critical race theory or this feminist, black feminist kind of idea of like, the system itself is broken. Don't operate within it. While I publish my article. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the system that has brought me lots of money for claiming that I'm such a victim is broken. Yes. The like system it. doesn't work. And sin. Publish to Vulture, guys. <laughs> Send me my paycheck. <laughs> What were your final thoughts about it? Uh, the show in general? Well, any final thoughts on the piece? Because I have one more myself if you don't. Well, no, like you said, I, I tried reading this several times and couldn't quite understand. Like I said, there were certain points that she made that I sort of agreed with, but those points weren't ones that supported her thesis, which was, as you mentioned, very muddled. And so it... it Ultimately, it just seems like the show, for whatever reason, isn't black enough. I don't know if she doesn't like the fact that it's portraying blacks in upper scale of that. Because they're, they're even richer than they are in the 90s show. I don't know if she just doesn't like that aspect of it. If she wants to see blacks struggling, you know, if because that seems to be a lot of the narratives that Hollywood and is obsessed with because we got to show black people struggling to make it you know and and you know constantly being victims of racism and white people are everywhere just spitting and beating them and, and things like that i don't know maybe that's where she's coming from it just doesn't have enough of those things in it therefore she hates it i don't know i don't think she knows what she thinks <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's, that's what happens though i mean it's funny but that's true that's what happens to people who are in this ideology because your thoughts aren't your own anyway yeah it's like your brain has been um, uh, taken over by a virus and you're just running, I'm mixing metaphors now, but you're just running this code. You've been programmed with this code and you're speaking it, but then you might have, it's all, this reads like someone who's having some of her own opinions, mm -hmm. but they're getting blocked by the code. <laughs> so it's coming out and, and yeah. contradicting herself because she, she's held hostage by this belief system. Yeah. Like some of the stuff she says, I agreed with too. Like the original family, Fresh Pencil Bel Air, it was very warm. It did show a very normal, loving, positive family. With their ups and downs and their problems, but mm -hmm. it was very warm and 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 loving. And I agree, this family doesn't feel that way. So I agree with her on that. But mm -hmm. the rest of what she's saying about like, and the system is broken and white Hollywood, Hollywood is one of these systems. And it's like, so then don't do 
don't do any black people on TV. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) She'll never be happy. Yeah. But so then what are your thoughts about the series? You've seen more of it than me. How much, how many episodes have you seen? So there are, I've seen all the ones that have been released so far, though there's been five. And so with, you know, with this series, I've tried to come at it objectively because I always ask myself, if it wasn't for the original series, could this premise work in a dramatic form? And I think the answer is yes. But the thing is, I and so many other people of you know our generation has grown up with the show, has seen that show. So it's inevitable that we're going to compare it. And it just, it doesn't, it can't compare to what we saw in, in the 90s, particularly since you had Will Smith, who is one of the most charismatic actors in history, there's just there's no comparison you know like you said there were a lot of themes certainly a lot of uh, social commentary in the original but that was more it was more concentrated in the first season and then it got less and even then there's still some here and there but ultimately there was a lot of uh, levity to it there there was a lot of you know moments of of uh, Joking and fun, just like saying the, with the warm family. That's frivolity. Yes, the frivolity, which is missing in this new show. It's just because it's just it just constantly hits you with the uh, social issues and stuff. Like um, Uncle Phil, he's running for district attorney of Los Angeles, and the big arc I guess he's going through is, and I think this is an arc that a lot of the characters are going through is this loss of authenticity where they don't quite feel that they're being authentic to themselves or they've lost touch with some aspect of themselves or the community. And so Uncle Phil has lost touch with some of his uh, fraternity brothers uh, that he's trying to get support from. And he ends up doing a little step dance and gets their support back. But there's an episode where he's trying to connect with, you know, the quote unquote black community and they start pressuring him to uh, say defund the police, which he does. Now, if they had portrayed him as someone who didn't believe that the police should be defunded or didn't believe that they should be reformed in that way, but he was feeling pressure to go along with that for, for political reasons. I think that could be interesting, but they establish him as someone who actually does agree with that. And he becomes, um, kind of an enemy of the head of the Los Angeles police department, the police union, uh, who put out a ad saying that he's, um, Antifa, that he's part of Antifa and stuff. And so he's upset that, you know, he tried to be a centrist, which wasn't gaining support. And now he's saying what he actually believes, which is more in line with blacks in Los Angeles or what they portray. And now he's getting demonized for it. And so that's, another storyline being borrowed from, you know, the headlines and, you know, with Aunt Viv, they, as the article mentioned, she's uh, a, now a art teacher who's uh, longing for a past as being an artist. And they seem to be setting her up to have an affair, I think, with someone, which would be kind of weird. We'll see where that goes. Uh, Carlton, is full of envy and jealousy. Will comes along and replace, basically replaces him because Will's, you know, funnier. He's better looking. Uh, his, his girl. Yeah, his ex girlfriend, Carlton's ex girlfriend's into Will. Uh, uh, Carlton's family. Uh, there's a one of the episodes where they go see Will's basketball game, and 
his basketball games at the same time as Car- uh, Carlton's lacrosse game, but uh, they're unable to make it because, you know, Will's game is going along and they forget about Carlton and Carlton has kind of a breakdown of sort and starts snorting something. He, he snorts, he says it's Xanax, but I think it's cocaine. <laughs> Cause the, and that was one of my predictions before I even saw the show. I was like, I bet you he's gonna, you know, use a lot of prescription pills or drugs of some sort. And, probably sell it to his white friends because i think that the uh writers of the show would want to make a comment about how many people in the upper class aren't that different from people in the lower class Mm -hmm. so they want to you know contrast that in that way and say oh yeah you you know will came from an environment full of you know drugs and you know crack and all this stuff but look at you have these privileged people that are still engaging in in drug life too and so right yeah, so it the show is just it's deviated so much from what those characters are, and it's kind of almost a no-win scenario, at least for again from our perspective of people who've grown up with the show. Because if we were in Generation Z, where maybe we hadn't seen the original show, maybe we'd have a different perspective on this. But it's inevitable to to compare it, and it just it does it doesn't stand up. It just doesn't it doesn't work in in that regard. You know, one thing about when you're you're telling me more of the plot line of the father of Uncle Phil, um, one thing about that piece that struck me is how the author clearly loves and has great nostalgia for the original series. Mm-hmm. She compares it to cuddling up under a blanket <laughs> with a cup of hot cocoa. That's how she loves it. And I can't help but think that she watched that series before she got infected with social justice. Yeah. Because if that series premiered today, she would hate it. Yes. The family is explicitly Republican. There's an episode where he's like waiting for Ronald Reagan to arrive to his party. Mm -hmm. And she would never tolerate that. But because it's from her childhood and she has nostalgia for it, it's like that's another reason I think she's muddled is because she likes this conservative family. (laughs) <laughs> and she doesn't like the new version who they're Democrats mm-hmm. and she's confused because she associates being a conservative with being white, just like she associates being rich with being white. And, <laughs> and yet she loves the old series. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. 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 I, I totally agree. Cause she did contradict herself because how much she, uh, how infatuated she was really with that series and how everything she was talking or not everything, but a lot of things she was talking about the new series, you could apply to the original series and based on what she was calling out. And so from that point of view, she should hate the original series, but like you said, she loves that original series. And, you know, I'm sure she did watch it before she came affected, but you know, there's also, you know, the original Fresh Prince is kind of held up in high regard by tons of people. And so I don't know how, I don't know if you get much points going against the original series, probably yeah. for the same reason you just mentioned, like a lot of these people who grew up on it and then got affected with social justice and, and start looking through other things through that lens, that racist lens. Yeah, they didn't get woke until later. Mm hmm. Yeah. Wonder how old she is. I should have looked that up. <laughs> I, bet she, oh I bet she's around. I bet she's a Gen Xer, and enjoyed it. You know, when she was young, before she got her mind got taken over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, and what what did you think of the series? The one I guess you only watched one episode. Well, I only watched the one episode, and like I said, based on that one, I, I would have continued watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm not so interested. Now that you're telling me they make Ashley 
non-binary or whatever. <laughs> well, it, and I think it was funny too because uh, in the scene before that, uh, Vivian Banks is telling Uncle Phil that Hillary's going to invite her social media influencers over, and that one of them's non-binary, and that this person goes by they them, and you have to, you know, say the pronouns. And I kept expecting Uncle Phil go, "What the hell?" But he doesn't do that. And I'm thinking, like, that's not realistic. Because I mean, if this show wanted to be honest, you know. Gay culture and trans culture is not something that's largely accepted by blacks in general. And it's one of the reasons why there are a lot of closeted gay black men. You know, they're on the down low, as they say, because it's not something that's widely accepted. And so if they want to be realistic, I, I would have thought that in that moment, Uncle Phil and maybe Aunt Viv as well say things like, no, we're not going along. This is crazy. And the drama would have came from there. Now, maybe they still will, given that they made Ashley gay and she was afraid to tell her parents. They didn't establish that her parents were, you know, against kind of gay or gay lifestyles or anything like that. But I don't know where else they're going with Ashley's storyline. And drama has to come from somewhere. So I imagine that's what the conflict is going to be. We'll find out. Maybe Uncle Phil's on the down low. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> There's some other secrets about you know, Uncle Phil, you know, and, and Jeffrey. Jeffrey's not who you think he is. He's not. Are you, know, it, you, know. are you gonna keep watching it? I I can't stop, Carrie. I don't know what's wrong with me. This, see, the thing is, I I am interested in reinterpretations, even if they're bad, because I like the idea of trying to redo something while being true to it but doing something slightly different or, or improving on some aspect of it. I don't think the show does improve on any aspect of the original series other than on a technical level in terms of like uh, cameras and, and sets and stuff like that. But in terms of it's what it has to say socially, the commentary, I'm interested in seeing if it deviates at all from where we think it's going in terms of the overall kind of social justice culture and how is that, you know, compare and contrast with the original series. So on that level, I'm interested in, in continuing to watch it, but it's not something I would recommend people to watch. But you recommended I watch it. I, cause I, 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 I would be good to talk about it. <laughs> no, it was, it was. <laughs> otherwise I, I wouldn't put it on, honestly. I yeah. Mean, I'm like her. That's another place I agree with her. I have a fond nostalgia for the original and I don't need to see it redone in some gritty mm -hmm. post woke, like a woke reimagining. I just, there, there was a uh, Saturday live skit and Saturday live. Yeah, it does suck, but occasionally they do get some funny episodes. I have to be honest. And they did a parody where they did a gritty reboot of family matters and what? so, yeah, <laughs> they had Urkel, who was like a gangster, and he had like a gun, and he like shoot people. Go, did I do that? <laughs> I was like, all right, SNL, you, you, you're not redeemed overall, but for that, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you kudos for that. Was that recently? Yeah, that was probably a month ago. So, oh, so they're sort of making fun of this or reference? Yeah, they were making fun. This came around right before the the series st started. Okay, you told me. Offline, you told me about another SNL skit recently that you liked. Well, I I'm gonna say I liked it. I was just surprised by it. Uh, this it was in the last episode where they seem to be acknowledging that the whole response to COVID or is baloney. 
because they have a group of people sitting around a table and they're having dinner. And one of the people there is like, well, I, I read an article in, in Bloomberg recently that was talking about, and like it closes up on people's faces, how they're all nervous. And she's like, well, it, it kind of talks about how, you know, masks maybe aren't as effective as, you know, initially said. And like, people are like freaking out, but it like, it keeps <laughs> one and they're all like, Omitting parts of it, they're like, well, maybe the, the boosters aren't as effective as they said they are. And so I was I was shocked that they, the almost honesty that SNL was doing, particularly considering that four weeks earlier, five weeks earlier, they did a um, MacGruber skit with uh, Will Forte where uh, he's basically an anti-masker and didn't believe in vaccines, anti, you know, vaccine guy. And they also said he was like part of QAnon and, you know, he dresses up as that Viking guy that was in the Capitol building on January 6th and stuff. And so they, they were still kind of making fun of those of us who've been saying that this is all garbage, that it's all, you know, exaggerations and not being honest with us. But now we're starting to see the, the honesty. Like, it's like now they've been given the go-ahead now that, you know, the CDC and other organizations are now starting to go, well, yeah, maybe some of these measures didn't quite have the effect that we thought they were. Oops, our bad. And so it's, it's it was surprising, but it did kind of still make me a little mad. <laughs> too. Yeah, I, I get that too, because they're going to... I want to see this sketch now because it sounds very funny, but I bet, I bet it's some of the writers, everyone in that COVID cult in that, in the, that world, you know, everyone in that writer's room, they're all in that cult. And you know, just like the other people that we all know in that cult, there are people who are weary of it and they're tired of it. And yeah. so I have to give them credit. It sounds like a very funny idea because it's what they're really going through. It probably is like that when those people go out to eat with their friends and they're all still wearing the mask and then they, you, they're trying to see how how much of a true believer the other person is and can they let their guard down or not. Yeah, so yeah. much about what the social circle thinks. So it's a funny idea that they would even do that. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, it was, it was, again, it was kind of refreshing given that they seem to, you know, a lot of their skits regarding COVID and stuff seemed a bit propagandistic. Did you see last night after the State of the Union, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah apparently put up a tweet where he was making fun of Biden just a little bit, just a little mm -hmm. bit of tepid making fun. He was, it was, he said Biden right now. And then it was a picture of like on your iPhone when the battery needs to be plugged in like a dead battery. <laughs> That's not even a harsh joke. It's just, no. he's low energy. Right. And apparently the fans backlash was so bad. They took the tweet down. Oh, really? Yeah. That's what I saw. I didn't, I, what cowards. Check me in the chat if I'm <laughs> wrong, but I saw people, they said they removed the tweet because of the audience backlash. If that's true, if they removed it because of the audience backlash, I mean, that's really sad. That means you're completely owned by your audience. Yes, beholden to the audience. <laughs> yeah. Give us the things we're used to hearing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Saturday, I, I don't want to talk too much about Saturday Night because I want to save it for episode where we go in deep on SNL, but their Biden stuff has gotten slightly more critical, which again, still light critical, but they did have an episode with uh, Jason Sudeikis uh, playing Biden. And he's, you know, in a skit with the guy, the new guy playing Biden, who actually does a pretty decent Biden. But uh, Jason Sudeikis like comes up behind him and starts sniffing him and doing the sniffing thing. And I was oh like, God. wow, you're actually acknowledging. And there was some other joke they did in referencing the sniffing thing. And I was like, 
wow, you're actually, wow, you guys are actually acknowledging, particularly since this sniffing stuff has been going on for like, since, you know, Obama first took office. That's true. And, and you know what's funny? If they didn't do that, if stuff like that didn't make it to the mainstream, which most of the time it doesn't, they just censor everything. And they're never, usually, I'm also surprised they even put that up there. But if they didn't, there are a lot of people who um, just kind of casually consume the mainstream media who don't know about all these things that we know about. Like if yeah. you get just a little bit outside that mainstream echo chamber, um, for example, I had a friend who she's not woke. She's just sort of casually NPC. Now, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I just mean someone who's got a life going about her business, not really paying attention, not that politically engaged, but just enough like culturally politically engaged to be like, ah, the Democrats are the good guys. And doesn't engage with any conservative media, just engages with mainstream stuff, right? Mm -hmm. She didn't even know about the Biden sniffing. <laughs> like, didn't know about And once I showed her all these, I was like, look at this, look at this. She was just like, oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So kudos. I have to, I'm surprised I'm saying this, but it sounds like at least they're willing to be a little bit more equal opportunity offender now. Than they used to be. Although For a moment, <laughs> I'll go back. I mean, this is the same episode where they opened up with uh, Ukrainian choir of New York singing. They didn't even do a funny opening. They just did a very soft singing. They have candles everywhere, and they, and they came out like the two women came out, and Saul only said, "Live from New York, Saturday night," like that. And I was like, oh, the only time they ever did. What's that? So it was serious. Yeah. Because the only other time I can think of where they did a series opening was when uh, Hillary lost. I and know. Kate, Kate McKinnon was singing Hallelujah on a piano, like holding back tears. I was like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. That was oh, oh, wait. There's three. Sorry. <laughs> what was the other one? The other one was, I think it was towards the end of Obama's term, where they had a big black and white photo. Like, I don't know. It's like 10 feet, 10 by 10 foot photo. Of, and they... Uh, women of the, the uh, Siren Life came out and sang like a, it was some 60s song. I forget what song it was. But they sang in front of, you know, this giant black and white photo of Obama. And that was it. It was like something I from North Korea. That one. That's like, crazy. We love you, dear leader. Yeah, whenever they stray away from comedy explicitly, like sometimes they do it, I think, just because they're letting their activist ideology guide the writing. And, mm. and they're still trying to be funny, but it fails because they're letting the ideology lead. Mm -hmm. instead of the humor but then there are other times like these three times you just mentioned where they're not even trying to be funny they're like let's do a serious sad opening where we play the piano and cry about hillary losing <laughs> <laughs> unintentionally might have been one of the funniest things i saw I <laughs> later you think hillary watched that and cried too later of course probably <laughs> um you know it's now being where i'm at now and the way i think about things now I'm able to enjoy things like that years later that at the time would have enraged me. Yeah. But I came to, uh, for example, those compilations they did of all the different media people crying the night that Hillary lost. Oh, yeah. I, I came to that like two years late, you know, to laugh at it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, but the old the meltdown real time. Oh. Yeah. But I had to enjoy it a couple years later. Yeah. Um, Young yeah. Turks was the best. I don't know if I saw that one. Oh, you got to watch that. There's a whole uh, 
compilation of it, like a 30 minute compilation of just the whole night, how it just more states kept going to Trump. And they're like, wow, okay, well, maybe we, she could still win. And it just cuts back to him, like, damn it, man, we're, we're losing this. I cannot believe this is happening. America's gone full fascist now. And they're just freaking out. It's, so, it's, it's hard to find those things now, though. They're trying to hide them now. Huh? Yeah, because now when I search for those things, just a couple years later, they've put such tight controls on YouTube to put up all these authoritative sources, right? And they push mm -hmm. down independent content. So you can actually have like the name of the thing you're looking for. And it's hard for me to find those those compilations and things now. Yeah, I think you're right. I can't remember what I did recently. I did try to find something related to politics. And I, it was like the fifth one, even though I had like the most views or yeah, I, I I hate that they're artificially pushing other forms of content, particularly by CNN, you know, ahead of you know anybody else. Because ahead of know, independent, funny people. Yeah, it's like if if I just like if I type in specifically type in the title of a video, you know, relate to politics by one of the creators. I like even if it's like something making fun of some politician or something, CNN will be the first one that pops up, even though their video has little or much to do with. Uh, what the video I'm looking for, like th there's only maybe one word that it's the title share. I have to go six search results pages sometimes just to find the thing I'm looking for. Cause it's yeah. just, did you want this CNN thing? No. Did you want this CNN thing? No. Did you want this CNN? No. <laughs> so um, I haven't clicked on a CNN video in like seven years. Why is yeah, this still like, why would you think I would want that? <laughs> I'm going to try and read just a couple of chats. Thank you guys for hanging out with us. If you're just joining, we do not have super chats yet. We don't have enough watch hours on the channel yet, but we do have a subscribe star and we do have a Patreon. Just look for Deprogrammed with Carrie Smith. And we read through some of these that had to do with our topic. Now people are talking about grabbing each other's butt. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> just another Wednesday night, kid. Yeah. Um, somebody says satire is the only place for these reboots. Do you think that's true? Uh, no. But it it's it's hard to do reboots just in general though, and so I I can kind of see how if the, if the original was series of whatever show and it comes back as satirizing something maybe it could be more successful. I, I I always say that you know in order to make a reboot in my opinion when it's justified if it can vastly improve on some major aspect of that movie or TV show. But most reboots aren't that. And so, yeah. you know. uh, here somebody says, Rib Rascal says, some intern punked a local news channel by inserting a graphic of creepy Uncle Joe into a story about a child molester. I saw that. I saw that clip. The news anchor starts talking about, <laughs> so it cut, they were doing one story, and then they yeah. and she's talking to the camera. And right as she starts talking, the new image comes on the screen. Of, it's supposed to be what she's talking about, right? It's a picture of Joe Biden, and at the bottom it says State of the Union. But she says, and in recent news, a 71-year-old man was just arrested for, uh, you know, molesting <laughs> a child. It was something awful. But they had this picture of Joe Biden. Um, I, too, wondered, Rib, if that was somebody doing that on purpose. <laughs> or just a funny, weird mistake. Uh, let's see. What else? I think that's it. People were talking about dancing, the reboot of the Wonder Year. Oh, the reboot of the Wonder Years. Lisa I haven't said, watched I that, but I, I kind of just want to watch it just so I can, you know, have more of a solid opinion about it. 
I didn't even know they were doing that. But, so <laughs> I always joke. I'm like, they already did a black version of the one of yours. It's called Everyone Hates Chris. And it was great. <laughs> did you like that show? I liked Everyone Hates Chris. That was a good show. Well, we're show. I didn't watch it. So I don't know. Really? It's a good show. Uh, what about, would you, would you be interested in a married with children reboot? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I remember for, first of all, a lot of these shows, part of what makes them so great is the time that they came out in and the context, you know, that they, they came out in the, what the, a lot of these shows kind of reflected the zeitgeist and had influence on the larger culture as well. And I think our culture compared to now was a lot better and healthier Compared to now, I'm not saying 100% healthy. <laughs> There's a lot of problems, but compared to now, it was a lot better. And I think a lot of these shows were better because of that and, you know, encapsulated a lot of things that are going on. And so a lot of these shows, if they try to reboot it, it just won't be the same. It's like, it's like Miami Vice. They did a Miami Vice movie, and I never really watched much of, you know, the 80s Miami Vice. But when you think of my, you know, 80s Miami Vice, you think about, you know, 80s and pink and neon lights and, you know, Miami and stuff like that. And doing it now, trying to put it into a modern context, it just, it loses a lot what made it popular and make those shows interesting and fun. And so I don't think you can really pull off a lot of uh, reboots. They're, 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 um, I think, th I think they have to exist within the, the context that mm -hmm. they aired. A lot of them you can't separate from the time period, from the culture mm -hmm. at that time. And if you do a reimagining of it, you, like we're seeing with this one, they have to redo everything. So it's basically not the same show at all. Mm -hmm. The culture's changed so radically. Yeah. And as uh, Scott in the chat's mentioning, you, you wouldn't be able to do Al Bunny the same way now. Because even though like Al is kind of a joke that he he's someone who never fulfilled his potential. I mean, the joke he's working at a women's shoe store. He's kind of emasculated in a sense, but at the same time, the women aren't really portrayed in a favorable light either. <laughs> really, like everybody's all they're all kind of like lovable losers in a sense. You know, Peggy's a, a, a nag and Kelly's dumb and slutty, and it's like you wouldn't be able to do the women like that. You, you yeah. can make fun of the men, but you, you wouldn't be able to you know, poke fun at women like that and, and have Al go to the nudie bar and, and stuff. No. Like Didn't he take his son too? Yeah, took his son to the nudie bar. <laughs> yeah. It's a great yeah. episode. I think it was at the nudie bar where him and his son get in a fight and they're like with other people. So they're staying back to back and just beating dudes and stuff. And, and it, was, it was great. Great father and son bonding on TV. Broken Umbrella, right on, says uh, it was a time of creation, but now is a time of recycling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of what's happening because there's no new ideas, but and and see, and that was part of the big issues going before this woke stuff happened. You know, social justice stuff because Hollywood was recycling old ideas. They were making sequels to movies that didn't need sequels, just taking old shows, constantly making it. And there was a a lack of attempts to be creative. I understand that there's nothing new under the sun, but there's always ways you can kind of put some twists and things on it to kind of make things seem a little bit you know original even though nothing's really original but studios were so invested in just you know building up brands and just pushing these products on people without really considering or understanding what made these things popular to begin with and and really trying to think out a interesting and fun story that can entice people to watch these uh properties 
you just take that and now combine it with the whole social justice stuff. So they're still doing the remakes and the sequels, but just, you know, putting more feminist and, you know, Black Lives Matter and Me Too storylines and subtext within these, you know, uh, properties, these, these movies and TV shows. And it just, <laughs> it just, it just makes it suck even more. It makes it suck even more. People in the chat are saying, uh, well, Tree Surgeon says they barely allowed married with children at the time, which, by the way, Tree Surgeon, if you haven't seen our very first episode of pop culture on this channel, we read an article from 1990 in the LA Times that Mystery Chris found that was so interesting. And it was talking about, it brought up uh, things from the 90s that people were trying to censor and boycott at the time. And it's such a mind flip because back then, of course, it was the social conservatives who were leading all of this purging and censorship. And now it's the left, the woke left. But I definitely recommend you check out that video if you haven't seen it. Um, Bungalow Logic says, Married with Children basically launched the Fox network. Yeah. Yeah, Married Children is one of their oldest uh, programs. And yeah, uh, Fox purposely wanted to kind of go... Uh, towards a younger demographic. And so they knew there was space to compete with ABC, CBS, and um, NBC. And so that's why they got controversial shows like that. Uh, they had Tracy Ullman's show, which is when The Simpsons first started on. And as we talked in the first episode of Pop Culture, how The Simpsons was very controversial at the time it came out, which is odd now, <laughs> considering that it's America's family. And now that it seems to be giving into the current climate and taking out a poo and, and all this other stuff. So yeah. my have the mighty have fallen. Taking out a poo. And then I just saw a Simpsons image with them holding Ukrainian flags. Oh yeah. I heard about that. And yeah. it's just why, why are you inserting them into this? I don't know enough about what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine yet to, to speak an opinion on it. I'm, I'm certain Homer Simpson doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> How many people have changed their opinions like based on, Seeing a Simpsons cartoon <laughs> picture. Well, he right. told me to support Ukraine, so that's what I did. I love you, Homer. <laughs> I love you, Homer. Did they, use, <laughs> did they use Homer to push the vaccine? I I, I, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> they did. I don't know. Um, I mean, what was the last time you even watched Simpsons? It's been a long time. I don't really watch a lot of the animated shows anymore. I kind of, nobody does. Yeah. I can't find anyone. Every time I ask them, like, when's the last time you watched Simpsons? They're like, Oh no, <laughs> they don't remember. I can't remember the last time I watched it. Yeah. Um, well, I think we should wrap up. We've gone longer than the hour we were going to go. I've had fun hanging out with everyone. Yeah. It was real fun. And uh, if it's your first time here, don't forget to hit like, subscribe, do the things. Thank you, uh, Tara T in the chat, who was saying to hit the hit the like button. Thank you for reminding me. Also, she says I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons. <laughs> a lot of people were. I had a lot of friends that weren't, and I've always felt bad. It's <laughs> yeah, okay. I've never watched The Simpsons. Somebody says because he, he he told Bart Simpson told Homer to eat his shorts, and if kids watch that, they'll be telling their parents to eat their shorts, and we just can't have that. We've come such a long way. When that was like the controversy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When that yes. was like 
you know, don't let your kids watch that or the Smurfs, right? Like, <laughs> if you go back to that and not knowing like what was coming. Although some people in that article that we talked about in the first episode, there was that art critic, Robert Hughes. He did see what was coming. Mm -hmm. That's amazing to me. This guy in 1990 was saying, yeah, this is pretty bad what's happening right now with the conservatives trying to censor everything. But I'll tell you what's coming. The left, they're going to mm -hmm. want to censor everything for political correctness. And he was right. How many, I wonder how many leftists at that time kind of knew things were going to flip. It's like they're, they're maybe some of them, because we were reading that article, you know, a lot of stuff they were talking about how, you know, the social conservatives were trying to censor stuff. And some of that was true. Other stuff was a little exaggerated. But I almost wonder if like some of them were just kind of playing it up a little bit on in certain levels, certain areas, knowing that, you know, there is going to be a, a cultural shift in the future. Like they were never actually advocates of free speech. They just, you know, since there was kind of attempt to kind of censor or, or, or discourage people from viewing their stuff, but they knew eventually that if the culture did shift, that they would have the reins of power. They would have the ability to censor. I don't know if any of them could see it that far down the mm -hmm. road. I, I couldn't. Oh my gosh. You know what we should do on some pop culture is bring up some of my stupid SJW um, essays. I, I remember. Yeah. I remember writing and complaining about the lack of diversity in Boston public, which <laughs> was actually a very racially diverse <laughs> I mean, we were always complaining. I, I don't remember thinking we would ever become culturally dominant, like the, the mm -hmm. justice feminist left. Yeah, most people I don't think believe that, but I'm wondering if, you know, Some there were other, yeah, other people who were a little bit more astute in, in history and had a, a finger on the pulse, much like uh, Robert Hughes. Like Robert Hughes, yeah. He where things were going, and it was only a matter of time. So Bungalow Logic says, is Mystery Chris the regular co-host of this show? Yes. So Mystery Chris is my regular co-host for Pop Culture, and this is a live show that we do on Wednesdays at 8 o'clock Texas time. And occasionally, you're going to be on Deprogrammed as well. Maybe. Yay, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, um, thank you guys for joining us. Tomorrow night, I do have a deprogrammed interview coming out with Jack Buckby, and th those come out on Thursdays at 6 o'clock Texas time. Uh, Jack Buckby is, well, you, you would find him fascinating probably, Chris. He's a former white nationalist and former like extremist alt-right guy from the UK who was sort of a poster child for the white nationalist alt-right and pushed onto a political stage, you know, in his early teens or his late teens. And he's walked away from all of that for years now. And he speaks against um, extremism and, and tries to talk about the things that lead young men to become radicalized on the right. And, it's really interesting. I'm very excited for everyone to see that one. I've never, I've talked to a lot of people who left the extreme left, like I did, mm -hmm. a lot of former social justice people, but I've never talked to a former extremist, like white nationalist right winger before. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested in listening and hearing what, you know, caused him to kind of leave his old belief system. Yeah. And what some of the similarities and differences are mm -hmm. in what that path was like. I just, he was fascinating. So anyway, that's tomorrow at six o'clock Texas. And then on Friday, we have a live deprogrammed, not yet sure what time, but we will let you know. Thank you guys for hanging out in the chat. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Thanks everyone.
Thanks, Knit Effery. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> Clap off. <laughs>